Oh boy, what a treat we are in for today. This is my favorite thing to talk about. Today I'm sharing with you the most cutting-edge, forefront, comprehensive, multidimensional, dynamic philosophy of life that I have ever found. We're going to answer this question. Are you ready for integral theory? So this is an introduction to integral theory. And I'd like to probe around with a few characteristics that people usually have when they're just about ready to stumble into integral perspective of life. I'm also going to do a bit of an overview of what integral theory is. So stay tuned. I'm so glad to be bringing this to you. This is the thing that I've been working towards with all these episodes. If you've been listening along to my episodes, we've been covering a wide range of things. Some of them are pretty out of the box, but some of them are psychology, religion, philosophy, all those sorts of things are really bringing us to the point where we can talk about integral theory. We've been laying a foundation. So, first up, all credit to Ken Wilber. Ken Wilber is an author, a philosopher, and just a force of good in the world. You can find out about him on his website. He's quite well known now. He is the pioneer of this form of integral theory. There are many forms, but none quite so clear and simple as Ken Wilber. So Ken Wilber is a name you must know, and every single thing that I'm talking about in this episode comes from Ken Wilber and his books. He's written many books. If you want to have an introduction, a layman's introduction to integral theory, then I suggest you read A Brief History of Everything. And that's his book that was designed to be the most kind introduction to integral theory. So what is integral theory? In a nutshell, if you imagine a jigsaw puzzle and each piece of the jigsaw puzzle is a form of psychology or philosophy or religion, then the whole picture is integral theory. Now, it is much more inclusive than just those three aforementioned forms of human knowledge. And the scope and the breadth and the depth of integral theory takes quite a while to fully appreciate because it's so large. But just as a way of introduction, think of this jigsaw puzzle which has thousands of pieces and each piece is a book or an idea or a cultural trend or a historical artifact that has been produced by humanity. From somewhere in time, somewhere in history, in some culture, and we're trying to put it all together. Some of the pieces we need to spin around, we need to tweak a little bit, but they all have their place. They all have something to contribute. They're all part of the same picture. Some of them don't work together. You have to put the pieces together correctly when you're making a puzzle. And integral theory makes sense of all the knowledge that we have, all the cultures that we have, all the different times that we've lived throughout human history. Its basic premise is that everyone has something to offer. Everything is trying to contribute 
to human understanding, the human experience and the human story, and even beyond humanity itself. So with that in mind, let's try and figure out if this is something you would want to be interested in. First of all, if you're into psychology, you'll probably love integral theory. If you're into comparative religion, then integral theory will really go a long way with helping you with that. Comparative religion is a pretty nerdy subject. You do have to be quite brainy to have that as your hobby. Maybe you're an academic or you're academically minded, you're intellectually minded. And in that case, integral theory will be great for making sense of all the different religions and how they relate to each other. Integral theory is often stumbled upon through the path of knowledge. So if you like knowledge, if you like knowing things, if you like finding out about things, you like studying things, then integral theory will be great for you. If you read non-fiction books in your spare time, and you have a thirst for the truth, and you want to understand how the world works, and what the answers to big life questions are, and you want to know more about philosophy, and you want to know more about heavy people, heavy thinkers, then integral theory will be right up your alley. If you sort of just go through life and you're thinking, no, I I know what's going on, it's simple enough, I just need to do my thing, then it's probably not for you. If you just say, well, here's the world, we're in some sort of situation, and that's enough for me to go along in life happily. I don't need any grand explanation or anything like that, and it's simple enough for me to just be in awe of existence, and these are the answers to the questions I have, and I'm just going to live out my life under these assumptions, under these answers to these questions, and it's worked for me. If that's the case, then probably integral theory is not for you. But if you can see the benefit of having deeper answers to life's big questions, then you're going to love integral theory. Questions like, how should we relate to each other? How does all human knowledge work and why are there contradictions why is there suffering in the world these are sort of religious questions but they all get to the ultimate concern that we have we all have a sense of being in reality and there's just this one summary that we have that we carry around with us in our sort of like a background noise to the things that we do throughout our day and integral theory really helps with bringing that into the forefront and explaining things in a more coherent way and a dynamic way. So integral theory isn't rigid. It's not dogmatic. It's not going to say, here is the answer, just stick to it. It's changing. It's evolving. It's breathing. It's like an organism. You can feed it different diets and it will change and morph into these beautiful things. So it's really up to you to take it on in your circumstance, in relation to your life. And it's very encompassing of that. It's very inclusive of that. And it can account for the differences of people and the differences in cultural backgrounds. Another way some people find integral theory is through the path of meditation and religion or spirituality. So if you're into spirituality and you have a religious practice, then Integral theory can really be a great supplement for making sense of your religion. It actually works as an addition to your religion. It doesn't destroy or debunk your religion. 
Now, you do have to change your beliefs. You do have to challenge your perspectives. So some of your core beliefs will be put under the fire as all are when we're changing our level of understanding or our perspective of life. New information means you need to change how you think. But don't think that you're going to have to relinquish your religion altogether. Spirituality and subjective experience is a key component of integral theory. It's one of the core things that you have to work on is your sense of reality, your sensory perceptions, your feelings, your emotions, your states of mind, all that sort of jazz. So if you're into religion and you're into meditation, then integral theory can help with supplementing that. Another way people find integral theory is through the New Age movement or the personal development movement. So if you're into improving your life, being efficient with your time, having good emotional mastery, knowing what to do conceptually, having strong values, developing your values, trying to understand what's worth pursuing in life and these sorts of things that really come out of the motivational speakers and the New Age movement or the human potential movement, and these sorts of things that we're all lumping together at the moment, then integral theory is really the end of the road or the beginning of the new road, which a lot of people find when they're looking for the answers to how to be more productive with life. So you might have gone through some seminars, you might have listened to Tony Robbins' speeches, you might have done some business development You might do some motivational talks and you might do some yoga or weightlifting or exercise or sports and you really want to be smart about the efficiency of how you think. So mindset game or a mindset coach or a life coach, personal development, these sorts of things can lead you to integral theory. If you're into that sort of thing, then integral theory will be an absolutely beautiful, simple, coherent framework for you to work on all those things. And it will make sense of all those things. It will put the exercises that you do in their right place and make them even more efficient. And when you get to cross-training, you can really start to have personal gains on a scale that is quite hard to imagine until you get into it. So personal development is another way that people find integral theory. So I'm not sure how I personally came across integral theory. I don't remember the exact circumstances, but a big thing in that process or a big step in that process was reading the book What Matters by Tony Schwartz. So Tony Schwartz has written this book called What Matters, and it sort of fits between psychology and personal development and self-help. And it even gets into a little bit of the spirituality, like there's some certain breathing techniques which he investigates, certain spiritual practices that he investigates. And he's written this book, What Matters, to try and really answer this question. Well, his story is that he was a businessman and he had success and he had all this money and he had a little bit of fame as well because he was hanging out with Donald Trump and a bunch of things like that. And then he was feeling that there was a little bit more to life. There's something a bit more meaningful than what he'd already had. And so he went on this quest across America looking for people who had answered this question, what really matters? 
And one of the things he found, one of the core chapters in his book is a spiel on Ken Wilber and his integral theory. And that offers a great introduction and beautifully illustrates the power of integral theory. It really puts back into the limelight, into the spotlight, this idea that if you understand things better, you will be better off. It really is that simple. Who would have thought that it could be that simple? The more you understand things, the more efficient your actions are going to be. The more fruitful your efforts are going to be. Understanding really should be your highest value, your top priority. And Tony Schwartz basically says that Ken Wilber has formulated the most beautiful answer to this question, how do we understand things? How do we make sense of things? He's basically taken East and West, psychology and spirituality, and merged them together. I think Tony Schwartz calls it how Ken Wilber married Freud and the Buddha, or something like that, which of course is the psychoanalyst, or depth psychology, and the spiritual practice of meditation. So that comes back to this East and West thing. And then later, Ken Wilber called this growing up, which is what you say about the world, what you think about in terms of the words that you use, and then also waking up, which is your experience of the world, what goes into the senses and what happens when your sensory perceptions are developed. So I heard about this Ken Wilber guy in this book by Tony Schwartz, and I got a brief history of everything, and it was like the whole picture came together. Now, I think at that stage in my life, I had already familiarized myself with quite a few pieces of the jigsaw puzzle. Like I had read books by the Dalai Lama. I knew about developmental psychology. I had studied other forms of psychology, personality, transactional analysis, these sorts of things. And I also had a religious background. So I was pretty well understanding of Christianity a little bit of Judaism and Hinduism, and also of Islam. And I listened to a lot of Alan Watts lectures. So Alan Watts is big on the non-duality spirituality and the Zen and the Oriental and the Asian forms of spirituality and religion. So I had a pretty good foundation, but there was nothing that got all the pieces together. And I think if I hadn't have had that foundation... Integral theory might not have taken. Now, make no mistake about it, integral theory is a complex system. It is a heavy system. It's a, it's, a, it's a big weight to take on. It's very intellectual. Now, once you get it, it's very simple. It's very easy to understand. But to get in is difficult. It's almost like a party which has a very high ticket price for it. But that high price ticket is really good value. It's definitely worth it. So if you don't read nonfiction books, or you don't have an interest in philosophy or psychology at all, or even personal development and motivational speakers at all, and you just sort of come across an integral theory book, it will probably be going straight over your head and it won't take. You might be able to read the words, but you won't be able to take in the significance of it. It won't have a power to it. It won't have a 
energy to it. So make no mistake about it, you really need to be having some sort of foundation and reading non-fiction books to be able to have enough pieces so that when integral theory comes along to put all the pieces together, then you can see enough of the jigsaw puzzle. It's almost like if you have a jigsaw puzzle, which is a thousand pieces, and you have every single piece, you just need to put them all together. Well, then you're pretty much on your way if someone comes along and shows you how to put the pieces together. But if you have a jigsaw puzzle, which is meant to be a thousand pieces, and you only have 10 pieces and they're not together, well, it doesn't even matter if you put those pieces all together or in their correct places, you wouldn't know what the picture is of. So you're trying to make a picture, you're trying to make a jigsaw puzzle where you don't know what the picture is. And not only that, but the picture actually changes and morphs. So if we can imagine a jigsaw puzzle, which is more like a TV screen and it's showing a movie, then we can get a bit more into what sort of complexity we're talking about. But once you get it, it's very simple. It's very easy to understand. So it was an absolute eye-opener for me to read a brief history of everything. All the pieces came together, and it was just like this huge amount of energy, this feeling that I had that I knew where to go next. I knew what had to be done, and I couldn't get enough of these books. I've read not all of them by any means, but quite a few of these Ken Wilber books, and I've just got so much joy out of it and so much clarity. So I hope you can see that, and I hope if all these things apply to you and you are ready for it, then you can dive in and take the plunge and it will just open up your whole perspective. And, well, really, for integral theory to take, you need to have already had probably a couple of big shifts. There's a few, like, think of it this way. Most, most often when we grow up, we have paradigm shifts, but we don't remember them. So, for example, do you remember the time when you first realized that your parents don't know something you've done unless you tell them? So, you could go to school and do something and then come home and they would have no idea at all what you had done there. Now, some people have this realization quite dramatically and others don't. Some have it more gradually. But this idea that someone else can think something or rather, this idea that no one's going to be able to think about what you've done unless they have somehow either perceived it or you've told them, that's a big step in a child's development. That's a big shift. That's a big opening of their perspective. Now, when children develop into young adults, there are a number of different shifts like that. And even into adulthood, there are big shifts in world perspective. And to be ready for integral theory, you have to have already had a few of these. You have to be thinking that values are something that can be developed. You have to understand that your perspective is only your perspective. If you think that you've got the right answer, you know what the world is, you know how the world works, and everyone just needs to conform to you. If only everyone could convert to your religion, convert to your idea of the truth, then everything would be okay then that's not really going to be open-minded enough for integral theory to take. It's a massive shift in 
consciousness and perspective. And if you haven't had a couple of those already as practice, then it would be too shocking, it would be too much for you to take on. Now with any shift, there is a pain to it. There is a shock to it. And it can be very dramatic and it can be very hurtful. Because you have to realize that you were wrong. You have to admit that you were under a delusion of some sorts. But not exactly, because a new perspective also brings new joy, a new clarity and a new complexity. And if you can explain why you believed certain things at certain points, it can soften that blow. It can become much easier to progress. Transformation, development, psychological development is really core to integral theory. If you haven't noticed yet, things evolve, things change, not just in terms of Darwin's species or theory of how species evolve, but everything evolves. Life is evolving. Reality is evolving. So if you can't see that things need to change in order to transform, then you're probably not ready for integral theory. I think now would be a good time for me to talk a little bit about who Ken Wilber is. So Ken Wilber striked me when I was reading his books as some sort of super intellectual. Now when you have an academic or a professor who has two PhDs and he teaches at university, he has literary and cultural references which are wide and far. So he might be drawing things in from history, from science, from psychology. And you'll think, wow, he must have read so many books. And that's a common thought when you listen to an intellectual or you read their books. Ken Wilber seemed to be on a whole nother level. He seemed to be even further beyond, again, the academics. Because he can quote those books, he can quote those historical references, but he goes so much broader, he goes into more cultures, he goes deeper into history, and he draws them all together so eloquently. It's almost like his jigsaw puzzle has the most pieces, and he's very good at explaining those pieces in clear and simple terms. There are rumours that Ken Wilber was reading two or three books a day for a certain number of years. He's definitely owned tens of thousands of books, and it shows in his writing how far and wide his knowledge reaches. As I understand it, the story goes that he was the ducks of his school, completely blitzed his education, and then went off to study a science degree. And he knew that he didn't want to study science because he was interested in Zen Zen and spirituality and meditative practices. So he told his friend on the first day of his degree to tell him the day before there are exams. And so he skipped every class, just sat the exams, but still managed to pull off his degree. He then, at a very young age, at the only, I think he was 23 years old or something like that, when he wrote his first book, which was The Spectrum of Consciousness. That was his first book, and he literally just broke onto the scene as a writer. He broke himself in as an author, just on his first book. 
And he'd already set himself up enough to be able to do book tours and talks and seminars. And he could have followed that career. He could have made a whole career just off his first book, which is still in print and has been translated into many different languages. But instead, he decided to withdraw from that world, from public life, work on his Zen practice, and also keep writing. So the way he puts it, or the way I think he puts it, is that he could have written a book and then done a tour with it, or he could have, instead of doing the tour, written another book because he had so many ideas. And basically, ever since then, he's written a book a year. And they all seem to expand and they all seem to have new ideas and they have more depth because he's just an absolute powerhouse of creativity, of writing. A lot of his books have been translated into many different languages and they're all still in print. So it's quite an achievement to have that much writing, to be that prolific. The other thing that struck me about Ken Wilber was just that his, his body, his working out, he looks like some sort of bodybuilder. There's a famous photo of him with his shirt off in the gym. And it was like, whoa, this guy's into weightlifting as well as meditating, as well as academic stuff. This is like some sort of superhuman, is he? What is this? And that was really the first moment when I saw that you could be an intellectual and work out. It was the first person I saw who could really do both those things. And I've always been, up until that point, not really big on exercising, not really big on weightlifting or anything like that. But integral theory got me into that. It's so funny that the most intellectual thing I've ever found was the cause for me to go out and become a meathead and to <laughs> become like a, a, a an exercise junkie. So, I mean, I'm still not big on lifting weights. I'm still quite amateur. But at least now I'm much more open-minded about it and I have it as a part of my integral life practice. So this idea that one person can be developed in many different ways to a high degree really first hit me by coming into contact with the work of Ken Wilber and understanding his background. And that really is an example of how integral theory works in life. It's a multi-perspectival way of thinking, which means that all aspects of life are developed simultaneously. And that can lead to much richer results. It can help with becoming a much more developed human being. Now, I'd like to insert a disclaimer here, which is that I'm nobody. I'm really just a buffoon. I'm not a trained psychologist. I don't have a degree in philosophy, and I've got no blessing from the integral world or any of these integral people like Ken Wilber and others. All I am is an amateur. All that I'm sharing with you now, I'm just sharing from what I've absorbed from reading books as a hobby in my own spare time with my own interests. So... Take everything I say with a grain of salt, but also take it as a testament to what integral theory can do for a normal person, for a non-intellectual person, for really just someone who's not that smart. I don't consider myself to be really that smart. I've just read a lot, and probably not even that much. I've only probably read 
maybe four or five hundred books or even less over the last quite a few years. So take this as a case study, take me as a case study of what integral theory can do for a buffoon or how a buffoon would explain integral theories to another buffoon. I don't mean to, I don't mean to call you a buffoon, I don't mean to call you names, but think of it as the smart people trying to convey something to us dumb people. And if it's a really good idea, then the smart people, like Ken Wilber, will be able to get through to our thick skulls. Is that a is that a better way of putting it? I mean, I don't mean to put us down, but really, compared to these great thinkers and these great philosophers, we are just humble, common folk. So, disclaimer, I'm not a professional, I'm not qualified, but hopefully that works to my advantage when I'm explaining this. Another analogy I like to use when explaining integral theory to people who've just heard about it for the first time is that of coming into a new city. So if you go to a new city, you move house there, you can learn to drive around and get your way around town with two basic ways. One, we can just say, drive around aimlessly until you familiarize yourself with the streets. You'll go down some wrong streets, you'll go back and forth, you'll have to backtrack. But eventually, if you drive around enough in that city, you will be able to have a picture in your mind of where streets are, where certain monuments are, and where the key roads are. And you might learn them just by sight. You might not know the road names, but you'll see certain things. You'll be like, oh, I've been down that road before, and I know that road goes that way, and that goes that way. Now, that's one way of learning how to get your way around the city. Another way would be that we give you a map. And then you can say you can learn the street names. You can learn the directions, learn where to turn left, where to turn right, depending on where you want to go. So integral theory is that difference. Integral theory is the map of life. There are a lot of dead ends you can go down in life. There's not enough time to just stumble your way through. And that's why integral theory is so powerful. I think you'll see if you can get your head around it. So then, if you've listened this far, if you're still with me, Thanks for tagging along. If you're still interested in finding out about integral theory after all that, and it sounds like it's something that will appeal to you, let's get stuck into the theory itself. Now remember, the picture will not become clear. You're not going to be able to see what the jigsaw picture is of until you have a certain number of pieces. So we'll take our time, we'll go through it, Just be patient that all the pieces will come together as we explain more and more of it. So here we go. Humans develop through waves. And this is depending on their life conditions, their culture, and how old they are. So if we take a baby, zero years old, and we take an adult, an old... Elderly adult, 100 years old. Now, the age span can be one thing that we can study. So we can study the different ages of people, and that can be our lens by which we look at the different waves that people go through in life. Now, remember, a wave 
builds on the next wave. If you go to the beach, each wave comes one after the other. So don't think of it like one wave is better or worse. Think of it more like the wave builds onto it. Another way of thinking of it would be like a spiral. So if you go up in a spiral, starting not like a slinky, but more like a upside down ice cream cone, or sorry, a normal ups, a normal way up ice cream cone shaped spiral, a cone shaped spiral, you start at one point and you're going in a little circle and the spiral goes out and out and bigger and bigger as you go up the levels. Now, from one point of view, as you go up the spiral, you're going up levels. But in another point of view, you are going along the spiral. So you can't get up to another level until you go along the spiral on a lower level. So don't be too put off about this idea of levels as in better or worse. Now, another analogy is the ladder. So if you're thinking in terms of hierarchies, then a ladder is the common analogy that we use. Now, you can't have higher rungs of the ladder without the lower rungs of the ladder. Now, certain perspectives are really repulsed by the idea of hierarchies and ladders and levels. And they'll say things like, there's no such thing as levels because we're all humans and we're all equal. Now, integral theory accounts for that, and we'll get to that. But it's very important that you understand that there are differences between humans. An eight-year-old thinks very differently to a 30-year-old, who also thinks very differently to a 100-year-old. Someone from one culture thinks very different to someone from another culture. And so these ways of analyzing how people go through life is what we call waves of development or levels of development. Now, a psychologist might have a different way of looking at levels rather than age. For example, a psychologist might take a group of people and ask them a question like, what is important in life? And they'll map down, write down the answers to that question and then move those answers into waves or levels. So that would be a bit different to just looking at how people act at certain ages. Now, there are a number of psychologists that have done this. We call this developmental psychology. And they all have a different range. For example, Piaget focused more on child development. He didn't go all the way through to the adult and to the older people. He focused more on the stages of early learning and the levels that children go through. And then we have Claire Graves, Beck and Cohen, who took a broader sample and more of a complex view of developmental psychology, and they actually applied it through multiple cultures. And then we have the Eric Erickson school, who's yet another developmental psychologist, and he looked at personal conundrums or paradoxes, such as trust versus mistrust, autonomy versus shame, aloneness versus intimacy. And these things happen differently yet again at different stages in the life of a human being. Now, each of these 
models, each of these forms of developmental psychology can divide their ladder or their waves into different amounts. Some of them have only five levels. Some of them have 12 levels. Some of them can have 112 levels. It really doesn't matter too much where you divide it. It just depends how much detail you want to go into. Now, when we get all forms of developmental psychology, what we can do is distill it down into broad levels. These are generalizations. Ken Wilber calls this orienting generalizations. So we can have five big levels of developmental psychology, which can help us to then move into the details and have more of an understanding of what humans develop through in terms of their waves of life. So that's waves of development. And that's one dimension of integral theory. Waves of development is developmental psychology, and we can use a number of developmental psychologists and their ideas in order to build the picture of levels of development. Now, the next dimension that we can go through is what we call lines of development. Now, Ken Wilber likes best to use the work of Howard Gardner and his multiple intelligences. And it's a good example of multiple forms of intelligence. So not only do we have one thing going through the waves of development, but we have multiple lines that go through the waves. So, for example, you can have moral development. So this is the answer to the question, what's the right thing to do? What is the good thing to do? How should I act? What is right from wrong? What is bad? What is frowned upon by my society and by myself? And there are levels of complexity that happen to a person specifically in relation to their moral development. Now, their moral development is completely separate to another form of intelligence, such as their aesthetic intelligence. So aesthetic intelligence would be their idea of beauty, what is pleasing to the eye. How do you arrange the furniture in your house? How do you cook a tasty meal? What sort of art do you like? What sort of music do you like? How do you arrange a, a bunch of flowers in a pleasing way? How do you like your architecture? How do you like your cinema? How do you like your cultural expressions? So these are aesthetic things. They're how they look, and it's a taste. It's a personal taste. So you can see that moral development and aesthetic development are two totally different things, and they have their own levels of development. They have their own waves of development. Now, there is also existential development, existential intelligence. So this is the answer to the question, what is existence? What is my ultimate concern? What can we say about this big old ball of magic that we find ourselves in called life? And there are complexities to how you answer that question. And if you haven't noticed yet, but your answer to that question has changed over the course of your life. 
So your existential intelligence is your ability to summarize how you feel about existence. It's the ability to hold big picture images, take a bird eye view of philosophies in your head, and to really zoom out and just summarize everything at once. Some people are better at that than others. And so the people who are better at it are the highly developed on the existential line of intelligence. Now, there are many lines of intelligence. There are many lines of development, including kinesthetic intelligence and cognitive intelligence, musical intelligence, intrapersonal intelligence, intimacy intelligence. The list just goes on and on and on. And I've spoken about these in my episode. I think I titled it Be Many Smart. And that was where I gave my tribute to Howard Gardner. And you can look up talks by Howard Gardner on the internet. He's quite well known. So if you want to find out more about the lines of development as separate things unto themselves, find out about Howard Gardner. And there are other psychologists as well. Usually, when you have a form of psychology, they have one line of intelligence and they say that it's central. So you might have your values development as central and then that form, that psychologist or that school of psychology will say, well, all the others are just off to the side or they're branched off or, they, or even worse, they don't exist. All those others are just not important. And our form of intelligence is the central form of intelligence. With integral theory, we say that all lines of development have a place and they all have their own characteristics and they all need to be included. So it's a way of reconciling this idea that if you develop yourself with Freudian psychology, that's going to be doing one line of development. And if you're doing development with Carl Jung, Jungian psychology, that's going to be slightly different again. Now, a psychologist has a range which they cover, and that's what's so genius about Howard Gardner is he's identified these different forms of intelligence. So you really can go a long way with dividing our waves into lines. So that's dimension two. We've got waves or levels, and we've got lines. Next, we'll go through the four quadrants. Now, the four quadrants was one that was really good for making sense of everything. And when I understood this, there was no going back because the four quadrants is really central to integral theory. And it really is the, the one contribution that Ken Wilber has given to humanity. Now, how the story goes how he came up with the four quadrants is he was locked in a cabin in the woods, not talking to anyone for three years with 10,000 books on the shelves and charts and maps and psychology models and religions and notes and summaries and commentaries and all this laid out on the floor and he's looking around seeing what's going on here. How do I reconcile them all? Some things seem to be going up. Some things seem to be going down. Some things are personal. Some things are collective. And they're all seemingly 
trying to get at something, but they're also contradictory. So the four, con- the four quadrants is really the thing that resolves all contradictions. You can use the four quadrants to index any form of human knowledge, and it's central to integral theory for that reason. So basically, Ken Wilber was pushing into these different forms of human knowledge so hard, pushing his brain against the floor, and then he had his epiphany, his career-defining epiphany, which was the four quadrants. And it's sort of like, once you know about them, you sort of shrug your shoulders and go, well, that's obvious, that's easy, that's so simple. But you need someone to point it out in order for you to reach that. Sort of like when Picasso invented cubism everyone sort of thinks well that's so simple that's so easy retrospectively and every artist can do that it's like an idea that once once someone does an idea it's very easy for others to copy it but we lose the appreciation of what it's like to be a pioneer for that originality that innovation so Just keep that in mind when I'm talking about the four quadrants, because I think this is Ken Wilber's central contribution to human knowledge. So, the four quadrants. We've got two axes. Collective and individual. Interior and exterior. Is that four axes? I don't know. Two axes, but they're extremes on either end. So, if you draw a line straight down your page, and you draw a line straight across your page, and you've got four squares. At the top left, you've got individual interior. At the bottom left, you've got collective interior. At the top right, you've got individual exterior. And at the bottom right, you've got collective exterior. So you've got your individual and you've got your collective and you've got the inside world and the outside world. So the individual is the unique part. You are only you. There's only one you on the face of the planet. And yet, you are just a human. Have you seen that Monty Python movie, The Life of Brian? And he opens up his window because everyone's following him or they're chasing him or something. And he calls out to the crowd, you are all individuals. And then in perfect unison, the whole crowd goes, yes, we are all individuals. It's very funny. But here we've got that collective and individual paradox being resolved. Now, interior is the consciousness, the subjective experience. It's the thing you can't see. It's your thoughts, your emotions, your feelings, your states of consciousness, your states of being. And the exterior is anything that you can point to or film or photograph or see with your eyeballs. That's the exterior world. So that's the four quadrants. We've got interior, exterior, collective, individual. Another way of putting it is the top left is I. If you ever finish, or if you ever start a a sentence with the word I, I do this, I feel this, I say this, then you are the subject of that 
interaction, of that story, of that part of existence. If you ever say we, then that's collective. This is the bottom left quadrant. We is us together. It's an individual, it's a, it's a subjective, sorry, it's a subjective collective. So we do this, we feel this, this is our shared experience, this is our shared idea, this is our shared thought. And then if you have it, so it as in object, that lamp, that tree, that chair, that desk, that washing line, that bed, then that's a single exterior world. Now that tree, a tree also has a collective nature to it. There's something that all trees have in common. You can always look at a tree and know that it's a tree. And you say, yes, that is always that's a that is a tree, and yet it's always individual. Same with beds. There are characteristics that all beds have. You might even have beds on a productive line. They'll be exactly manufactured the same way. And that's the collective its, I-T-S. But there's always going to be the individual bed that you're that is in your bedroom. That's the specific singular and the collective of the exterior. So any form of human knowledge usually falls into one of these four quadrants. So moral development is all about we. When you talk about moral development, it's in relation, it's a social construct. It's in relation to people. And it's behavioral. It's psychological. It's put in terms of what we should do, how we should feel, how we should act. Personal development or subjective development like spiritual practices, yoga, exercise, that's individual interior. That's your experience of reality. And the list goes on. It's really up to you to work out how to populate the four quadrants with the different forms of knowledge that you have. But I hope you can see that this helps resolve a lot of tensions and contradictions between does the world exist and I'm just participating in it or can I only ever know things from my own perspective my own subjective world am I just in my own dream the four quadrants resolves that so we've got waves of development we've got lines of development and then we've got the four quadrants and all this happens all at once simultaneously. Everyone has the waves of development. Everyone has their many forms of intelligence. It's not like someone doesn't have one of the intelligences. Every human has them and all the quadrants happen at once. So you're starting to get a picture of how multidimensional integral theory is. That's just three of the dimensions. Now the fourth dimension that I'd like to add to this conversation that we're having so far is the self. So levels and lines are navigated by the self. If you want to know more about this, there's the book Integral Psychology by Ken Wilber. Basically, he's got about 200 forms of psychology and he's put them all together into this integral theory that we've been talking about. So it's a, a jigsaw puzzle with 200 pieces. So he's talking about the self, which is the thing that navigates 
the lines of development and the waves of development and the four quadrants. But basically, it's the view from where you are within your waves, lines, and quadrants. How things look and feel and what you say you are, if we ask this question, what are you? Then you answer that question, not necessarily with words, it's more of an experience or a feeling or an emotion or any another any other number of complex things. Yourself is what it's like to be where you are. It's your location in the waves of development and the lines of development and the quadrants. So the self changes, it morphs as new waves unfold, new intelligences grow and the quadrants expand then the self morphs and changes and adapts and becomes more and more complex and some things break off, some things have fallen away, some things are suppressed, some things become addictions, there are sometimes contradictions, there are breakthroughs, there are things that are better explanations or worse explanations, and there are events in life which change your perspective. So the point in which where you are and what you say you are changes depending on your location in reality. Basically, as your life goes on, who you are changes. It's that simple. What you say you are is simply what you are. And integral theory and using these lines, waves and quadrants as the self, the navigation of these things, tries to bring into awareness this process. Usually we're just bouncing around and we don't know what's happening and what changes us we don't notice until after the fact and that's only if we reflect on things. That's only if we take the time to really take the initiative on contrasting how we used to be to how we are now. So if you really think hard about what it was like to be 12 years old, really think about it. Where were you geographically? Who were the sort of people you were talking to? What sort of conversations did you have? What sort of feelings did you have? What sort of desires did you have? What fears did you have? What activities were you doing? What were you working on? What did you think the future was, was like? What did you think the past was like? And you really, get, you really get into that world of 12 years old, 12 years old. Where were you when you were 12 years old? What house were you living in? Do you know what you did most commonly on the weekend? And if you compare that to where you are today... And what contrast there is between those two worlds, then you can get a bit of an understanding of how the self evolves. So one of the ways you can inquire into the nature of the self and how it changes is to do journal writing. So this is my personal preference for developing self, is really getting into the pictures, building the pictures, and then contrasting them. And it takes a lot of self-reflection. It takes a lot of time to build those pictures, but once you do, you can see the changes, you can see these waves of development, how they express themselves in feelings and behaviors, how these 
different intelligences. Some were more developed, some were less developed. And all these, also the quadrants, you can see how there's different ways of explaining. You can explain it from the exterior world or the collective world or the subjective world. It really is a matter of fleshing out the framework. So another way of looking at the self is saying that it's the structure of your consciousness as opposed to the state of your consciousness. So the self has structure and it also has states. So states are temporary and structure is solid or it's consistent. So the structure of what you are is the totality of everything that you've been before. It's everything that you've been up until this point now. All the waves that you've gone through, all the lines of development that you have, and all the quadrants. Now a state is temporary. What will happen is you will shoot over into something else. This will be an experience. You'll move into a different wave, or your intelligence will take a jump somewhere else, or something will happen in the quadrants, and you'll be launched like a rocket into another part of this web, this integral web. And then you'll be there, you'll look around, and that will be your experience. And then like an elastic band, you'll come back to your average, your normal self, the structure of yourself. So if you can imagine highs and lows, intoxication and hangover, ups and downs, ins and outs, and also the different flavors. It's very hard to categorize states of being because there's such a large variety. There's such a huge variety. Then you can see that your average is the totality of all your states. Your structure is all your states. And one of the ways that you can move through the development model, through this integral structure, is by having different states. And part of the integral life practice is inducing certain states. Generally speaking, we put ourselves into different states through meditative practices, but there are a whole range of things that you can use to put yourself into different states of consciousness. Basically, meditation is like, it's a gradual and solid and incremental state training. So that means you're Average will improve slowly and subtly, whereas other people have these outrageously crazy states of consciousness. They have these huge spikes or emotional spikes or adrenaline rushes, and they have these thrill-seeking complexes, and they go out and do these outrageously huge things, and they have a big crash down. So how elastic you are is a matter of how your states affect your structure. So we've got waves, lines, quadrants, the self, states, and structure. Are you able to keep all that in your mind? Because we're going to add another dimension now. The next dimension I'd like to add is types. So you can have types of self. And this is most commonly, or the most popular model that integral theory uses that I've seen is the Enneagram. So the Enneagram is a form of personality analysis. 
So you can have a type of self navigating this integral structure, which is totally different to another type of self. So you might be an achiever, or you might be an individualist, or you might have introversion or extroversion, or masculine or feminine. And this is how you start to understand that people can have similar states of consciousness or experiences, and yet it expresses itself in a totally different way. And they're all moving through the same levels, and they all have the same kinds of intelligence, but they express themselves very differently because they're a different type of self. They're a different type of person. So types is just yet another psychological dimension that we can add to this integral framework. And you could see that if you've got 12 different levels and 10 different lines, and you times that by four quadrants, and you times that by nine types on the Enneagram, then you can have a huge number of people. That's a huge number of variables because each variable is timesed by the next. So that's 10 times 12 times 4 times 9. And that's not even all the dimensions that I'm mentioning. That doesn't even account for temporary states and structures. So this is how you know that it can account for everything because it simply adds on dimensions that only make the picture richer rather than excluding things. So if you come across the Enneagram, you might find that it's useful and helpful and it explains a lot. And a lot of people read, the, read about the Enneagram and they say, wow, a light bulb's gone on. That's quite insightful. I can, easily make think, I can easily make sense of things now that I understand who I am and who other people are and how they interact. But you'll also find that it's incomplete because you'll have other problems that come up. You'll have other things that happen to you and they can't be explained by the Enneagram. And that's how we fit that into a bigger picture. That's how we have a case for a larger understanding, a larger philosophy, which is integral theory. Now, there are still more dimensions that I'd like to add to this picture that we've got so far. Now, they're not entirely closely related. They do branch off themselves. And they all do become a bit more isolated, but still related. So if you've been able to follow along this far, you could probably follow through all the way to the end. Now, the next branch of integral theory that I'd like to talk about is what I call spheres of reality. And these are sort of like the sort of like the four quadrants in the sense that you take all reality, the biggest picture you can, and you try and divide it into four or five even parts to help simplify the picture, to help understand the picture. That's basically what intellect is. You take the whole and then you divide it, you cut it into pieces. So spheres of reality are all of, all of reality, the totality, divided into just four or five different parts. So there are two kinds of spheres of reality that can help with the overall picture of integral theory. So here it is. We've got four spheres of reality. This is our first kind. You've got the 
physiosphere, the biosphere, the noosphere, and the theosphere. So those pretty much mean what they mean. So the physiosphere is physics. The, the, the physics, I'm getting my th and f mixed up because it's such a tongue twister. So if you talk to a physicist, a scientist, so this is your Newtonian physics, your Einsteinian physics, your laws of gravity, planets, atoms, all that jazz. That's the physical world. That's the physiosphere. It's all about how the empirical sciences work. If we look at our four quadrants, it's the its version of the four quadrants. Anything you can look at through a telescope or a microscope or a magnifying glass is the physical world. It's the physical stuff. You can touch it, you can break it, you can bend it, you can rearrange it. And basically, a huge chunk of the sciences are nested in the physical. They're all about the physical. And in fact, a lot of the sciences are reductionistic in that they only say that the physical exists. So we are all just protons, neutrons, and electrons bouncing around in the world like billiard balls on a pool table. It's the disenchanted world, as some people like to call it. There's no magic to the world. It's all about maths equations and A plus B equals C. And there's no personality or soul or beauty at all. It's just the physical, empirical, hard sciences. This is what we call the hard sciences. So this is the physical world. Now, this sphere is foundational to all the others. It's the base of everything. But don't take that to mean that it is everything or everything is reduced to it because that would be a mistake. That would exclude huge chunks of human knowledge. The next sphere is the biosphere. So this is life. And there was a time in science history where defining life and distinguishing it from physical biology and physics, they, they saw this as a problem. They saw it as a difficult thing to do. Where are we going to draw that line? How are we going to have a concrete definition of what is alive and what is not alive? And it's this spooky thing. It's this mysterious thing. Is there something that's in between? Is there matter which is arranged in a sort of, yes, it's sort of half alive. It's not alive. We've got plants. We've got fungi. We've got cosmic soup. We've got animals how do we look at that and reconcile the two but now it's very easy for us to get our head around there's life and there's physical now you can't have life without the physical world you can't have biology without physics but that doesn't mean you should reduce biology to physics and vice versa you shouldn't reduce physics to biology but that's one of our broad spheres of reality Another sphere, or the next sphere, is the, the noosphere. Now, humans are the only ones with the ability to break into the noosphere. It's all words. 
It's all symbols. It's all concepts. It's all theories. It's all cognition. It's all ideas. Humans are the only animals that we've come across so far that have this layer on top of the biosphere. Now, there are hints of it in other animals because they have, for example, calling communication or sounds or mating sequences or dances. So communication is really just the tip of, it's the entering into the noosphere. So the noosphere is basically all human thought. And that's nested in biology, which is nested in physics. So certain animals can get a little bit of a way into the noosphere, but they can't have a conversation with you. They can't go all the way. Now, if you have enough words, you have enough concepts, you have enough symbols, what emerges on top of that is the theosphere. Now, theology usually means the study of God. This is where the religious preacher comes in. They're trying to say something, use words, which is not the same as. So the, think of the difference between the biosphere and the, the physiosphere. That difference is going to be as dramatic as the difference between the noosphere and the theosphere. So you can't use words in the theosphere. The theosphere is beyond concepts. It's beyond symbols. It's beyond ideas. Words can only be the basis for the theosphere. This is why you have a whole Bible or a whole Quran or a whole Gadvad Gita or any religious text, which is a whole bunch of words, which is trying to illustrate a picture of something which is beyond the words. So those four spheres of existence, spheres of reality, can help us orient for our direction, for our concepts, for our philosophies and understanding our sciences. And it's one way of reconciling science and religion or philosophy and science, the mind-body problem, the hard sciences and the soft sciences, experience and external world. The other kind of spheres of existence goes a little bit differently to this, and it's more to do with the states that we have. So this is more personal. If phys- physics, biology, noosphere, theosphere, theosphere is all about the general collective exterior world, then these spheres are more about the interior individual world. And they are gross, subtle, causal, and non-dual. So each state of consciousness can fall into those four broad categories. So gross states of consciousness would be like being asleep or being awake or being in a flow state or being in a creative state or concentrating, these sorts of things. And then the subtle states of consciousness would be even more subtle still, as the name implies. So that would be more detailed in the differences that you make in your subjective experience. So you might say, this is my body, this is my mind, this is a emotion, this is a thought pattern. And you might divide your thoughts into different kinds of thoughts, speeds of thoughts, 
past, present, future, these sorts of things. These are a bodily sensation. This is a experiential sensation. These are subtle forms of states of consciousness. And you can't understand your subtle, and you can't learn about the subtleties until you've got at least some degree of understanding of the gross states and some control of the gross states. And then out of the subtle emerges the causal, and that is yet again more complicated, more detailed, more refined. So you have a thing that opens up, which is viewing the subtle states. There is a watcher that is doing the watching. So that's the muscle that is being built when you make the distinctions. And then you can actually turn that muscle into a thing itself. So you're starting to see with a different sense because how you look at your mind is not with your eyes. You don't hear your thoughts with your ears. It's basically saying, what is the thing that is hearing your thoughts? What is the thing that is seeing the pictures in your mind? That's the causal. And there's a whole range of details and complexities and levels to the causal realm. If you can make your way through that and develop yourself far enough to have a basic understanding of subtle and causal, then you can get to non-dual states. So that's where boundaries disappear the map dissolves because all, all all this all that i've said so far all integral theory is just a map it's just a it's a concept it's just the thing that you use to navigate the real reality so integral theory is not real reality and it knows that it accounts for these non-dual states where thoughts dissolve boundaries dissolve your sense of location dissolve and this is a state of con- this is an experience that you can have you can feel like you are in a different location you can have no idea what your location is your location can be everywhere and your point of view literally can be from every angle and this is what we call non-dual states of consciousness these are non-dual experiences and there's a whole array of practices that you can do to put yourself into that state of consciousness. There are a whole array of things that you can do to have that experience, to induce that experience. So remember, you can shoot through to a non-dual state of consciousness, but then you'll go back down to your structure of consciousness. You'll be back down to where you are, in your integral theory, in your web, in your matrix. So just keep that in mind. And these, this, this gross, subtle, causal, non-dual spheres of existence are a way of understanding further how different states of consciousness function within the integral fam- framework or integral matrix. So we've got waves of development, lines of development, the four quadrants, the spheres of existence, states, structures, and types. And it's right about here that most people's brains get fried. (laughs) So if you've been able to keep up with all this, then you're basically on board with integral theory. You've got the basic premise of it. Now, there are still yet more major 
dimensions to integral theory. But at least if you've got this far, you've got a bit of an idea of the framework. So you can put the meat onto the bones. So you've got, think of a house, you need a foundation for your house. And foundations are set, they're solid, they're not going anywhere, they're going to stay there. And foundations have rules that are the same for every building. There's a certain size that they have to be in order to support the structure. Now you've got integral theory as a framework. And if you can get your head around this, then you've got your frame up. What you need to do is put the, the meat on the bones, put the padding on the walls, and then you can... So, so to do that, you go off and you study one of these psychologists or you study something that will put you into these states of consciousness. So you'll do yoga or something, or you'll do a certain form of meditation, or you'll do a certain diet, or you'll do a certain exercise. And this is putting the meat onto the structure. This is fleshing out all of it by doing more research and having more of an understanding. So if I say, quote, Eric Erickson, and that's completely new to you, then you haven't got any flesh there. You haven't got anything to put onto the framework. But if I, if I talk about Eric Erickson and you've read three of his books, then that's simply you already having the meat for the framework. And it goes vice versa. So you can use this framework to, to then branch out into other forms of research and flesh out your picture. So other dimensions. One of my favorites that I came across was to do with religion. And this is what a lot of philosophers call, some, some philosophers call the perennial philosophy. So if you take all the world's religions, Christianity, Judaism, Islam, Buddhism, and you, you lay them out together, and, <laughs> well, how much of human, human history is colored by the differences of religions. Let's not go there. But what's interesting is that you see there are similarities. And this is what we call the perennial philosophy. So there are things that are absolutely fundamental to every religion. And so here are three things. So this is not all of the aspects of the perennial philosophy. I'll just give you three. One is that we are in a sinful world. Well, there's something wrong with the world. There's something dark and tough about our situation in life. So we're sinners, in a sense. Or there is suffering, in a sense. And that's one aspect of the perennial philosophy. The other, another aspect of the perennial philosophy is that there is a way to come out of our sin. There is a way to come out of our suffering. There's a way to right the wrong. There's something you can do in order to fix this dark situation that we are in. Now, the religions all have different ideas of what you should do to do that. They all differ on that. But they all agree that there is something you can do. There is a process that you can go through. So that's something they all have in common. And then the third and final thing that I'll share about the perennial philosophy is that there's a world behind this world. There's a world that you can't see behind the everyday mundane 
normal world. It's a world somewhere else. Now, each religion puts a different emphasis on this other world. Some say that is the real world, and this is not the real world. Others say that that is the world that needs to be coming into this world, and there needs to be a merge of the two worlds. Others say that this world is a testing ground for the real world, life after death. But they all say that there's a different world. There's, there are two worlds, and these are seen in different ways. They're experienced in different ways. So the, there is suffering. There is a way to get out of it. And there's something else going on behind the world you see. Now, if you don't believe in other worlds or you're not religious, there are a lot of easy ways I can point out to you that other worlds exist. And for now, I'll just go through two of my favorites. One of them is a visualization. So close your eyes and think about where you were yesterday, as long as it's somewhere different to where you are now. Think about where you were yesterday. What were you doing? Who were you with? Close your eyes and really think about it. What were some of the sounds that were happening? What were some of the smells that were around? Was it a busy place? Was it a quiet place? What sort of things were on your mind? What sort of weather was it? Now, if you're doing that visualization really strongly and you can enter into that visualization, I've got a question for you. Where are you? Where, where are you when you're having that visualization? Are you in the room that you are right now, literally? Or are you in the visualization? This goes back to what I was saying just before about the location, the dissolving of location. Now, I'm not giving you a non-dual state. That's a bit different. This is an example of how location is a little bit more fluid than you might think. Now, if simply having a dream or having a visualization or having a thought is not enough for you to be convinced that that is a whole different world, then there's another very easy thing that you can do to prove that other worlds exist. What you do is you get a straw. And you cut that straw in half and you put it under one of your nostrils and then you close the other nostril. And then what you do is you breathe in very hard through that straw while the opposite end of that straw is pointed at 0.04 grams of 5-MeO-DMT. <laughs> and then hold on to your rockets, kid, because then there will be absolutely no denying without a shadow of a doubt that other worlds exist. You will be brought full force into the other world, or at least one of the other worlds. Basically, you'll be smashed beyond recognition. You won't exist anymore. There will be nothing of you left. No location, no history, no desires, no thoughts, no subject, no narrative, no personality, no memories, nothing. You'll be completely gone 
and all that will be left is this other world. Now, of course, you'll be assembled back together in more or less the same shape as when you took off from that rocket ship, and you'll have your own psychology, you'll have your own way of explaining that, but that will prove to you that other worlds exist. Some people have that experience and they say, that other world is the real world, and this world is only an illusionary world. And some people downplay that experience and they say, that was just a hallucination, that wasn't actually real. But as Terence McKenna quite eloquently put, hallucinations are a flavor of reality. They're still in reality. They're still a part of reality. So whatever psychological map or conceptual philosophical map you're using, you have to account for DMT trips, tryptamine trips, the psychedelics experience. And that's just one example of how you can prove that other worlds exist. That would be an example of someone being shot through to a non-dual state. And depending on where they're up to in their development, that can be quite destructive and quite degrading for them. So I'm by no means condoning the use of psychedelics and they need to be approached with utmost care, sincerity, respect. And they're really not very useful tools unless you have a very comprehensive framework and understanding of the history and the dynamics and the differences and really know what you're getting yourself into as much as you can. You really can't know what you're getting yourself into with a tryptamine, but at certain points, they can be used as examples for certain states of consciousness. Depending on what sort of flavor of development or type of development you have, that might be something that gets you to believe. It might be the tipping thing that gets you to acknowledge that other worlds exist. So, the psychedelic compounds is a tangent that I don't think we should go into, but that's just an example of the perennial philosophy, which is that other worlds exist, there is a way out of our sin, and there is suffering in the world. So those are the three factors that I'd like to share with you of the perennial philosophy. And if you look at all the world's religions, they all agree on those points. You can dissect how they approach those points. You can see their different answers to their points and the different practices they have. They also have different emphasis on them. Some are bigger on certain points than others. And that really gets you into the world of comparative religion. So the perennial philosophy is a must if you are doing comparative religion. And it's great for another one of our mechanisms of orienting generalizations in integral theory with integral thinking. So another major component of integral theory is what's called the 20 tenets. So like you have certain points that all the religions agree on in the perennial philosophy, there are also certain points that all forms of evolution agree on. So if we take biological evolution, physical evolution, and the evolution of language, the evolution of symbols, 
the evolution of concepts and any other range of forms of evolution that we know about and that we've studied, there are certain points that they all agree on and they can be distilled down to sort of like the perennial philosophy of evolution, the fundamentals of evolution. And this is what we call the 20 tenets. Now, I'm not going to go through all 20 of the tenets. You'll have to do that on your own terms, in your own research. But here I'll whet your appetite. I'll whet your flavor for it so you can see what it's like to have this as yet another dimension to our matrix, our integral picture. So one of the major principles of evolution is that there is a directionality to it. There is an arrow of evolution. Now, it's not a straight arrow. Ken Wilber would like to say, I think, that evolution meanders more than it shoots, more than it goes in a straight line. But there is a direction to it. It's going towards something. And what it's going towards is another one of our tenets. So it's going towards complexity. All evolution becomes more complex as it unfolds, as it enfolds, as it evolves. As evolution evolves, it becomes more complex. As Terence McKenna would say, I like to quote him yet again, reality is a novelty-making machine or a novelty-making so, like well, machines the wrong word it's there's there's something going on which is trying to make something happen and there seems to be some sort of push behind it now you don't need god to say that god is making it it doesn't mean that there's a person behind it or there's a deity behind it now Integral theory does deal with God and deities, but I don't want to get into that now. That's another form of our... That's another line on intelligence, of intelligence. But the direction of evolution is towards complexity. So that's two of our 20 tenets. The arrow and where it's going to. Another sort of two aspects of the 20 tenets is that there's more depth to less span as complexity evolves. So, for example, you need more of something for a certain amount of complexity to happen, which is another way of saying that reality or evolution needs to try to do something a certain number of, a certain number of times before it will succeed in getting to the next level of complexity. So the directionality is shooting on reality. It's shooting this arrow through and the arrow hits against the wall or it fails, it fails, it fails, it fails, and then it wins. It succeeds. It actually makes some progress. And then that progress will happen, happen, happen over and over again, repeat, 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 and fail and fail and fail to get through until eventually out of that row of arrows, another arrow will get through. So there's more span, but less depth. So there's, there's the, the higher the complexity goes, the less span there is. So if we think about this, so we've got four tenets. We've got directionality, 
towards complexity, more span equals more depth. And so if we use those four tenets to look at our history of reality, you can say that first there was physics, and physics was simple. There was just whatever, let's, for example, I don't know the actual physics of it, but let's just say there's atoms, and then those atoms combine together into molecules, and then you have gases and liquids and solids, and then the solids turn into stars and planets and moons, and there are bigger and bigger entities. So there's, there's more of a complexity evolving in the, in the physical world, in the astronomy of reality. And it took a certain number of planets and stars to happen, to evolve in a certain way, for life to evolve. So there are less planets with life than there are planets. So less span, deeper depth, like large, larger depth, larger complexity, higher complexity. Now, if you look at, so that's the physical world, that's the physics. And then if you look at our planet, you've got the biosphere, and this is our biology. So look at how many forms of life there are that have had to happen, that have tried to happen, which have been an attempt of the directionality of evolution. How many forms of life have there been before we've had language? There's only one animal that has language, that's us. And every species to have ever have lived has been pushing towards that direction, that complexity. So that's another example of span and depth. And now look yet again at how much language there is to how many human beings are enlightened and they've reached the theosphere, the God sphere, or the Godhead. Just, just don't get your knickers in a knot about the word God, okay? I always have to say that. God is, a, God is just a concept at this stage. The concept of God changes depending on where you are in the integral matrix. But for now, just take it as a, take it as a theory. So the God theory. So there's less people that have become enlightened than there are people that can talk. So this is complexity and span in its sort of pyramid scheme, branching out. And this is how we explain the nature of evolution, the nature of complexity. And Wilbur then also turns this around very eloquently into a moral development. He uses this for his moral explanation for why we should be more encompassing and compassionate for the depth, accounting for the depth and the span. You also notice that these things are all nested on top of each other. Like if, if biology disappeared tomorrow, then all human language would disappear tomorrow. And if physics disappeared tomorrow, well, definitely all biology would disappear tomorrow. So they're not better or worse. They don't reduce each other to each other. They're all nested within each other. The term Ken Wilber uses is their holarchies rather than hierarchies or holons. And he explains that term quite eloquently. So the 20 tenets fits in beautifully with our spheres of reality, 
with our four quadrants, with our states of consciousness, our structures of consciousness, our types of people, our lines of development, our waves of development. And it all comes together into this beautiful picture. You can see how they're all interacting with each other. They're all dissecting each other. If you imagine this this giant spider web, this huge thing which which even knows itself that it's it's limited. It still can you could still get out of integral theory. There are integral practices which collapse integral theory itself. This description is by no means exhaustive. And it's by no means the most eloquent way of putting it. Like I said at the start, this is a buffoon's explanation of integral theory. Man, if this is the first time you've heard about integral theory, things are going to happen for you. Once you go integral, you don't go back. It's a way of making sense of the world and bringing meaning to the world. It's bringing enchantment to the world. It's reverse engineering meaning. It can explain meaning. It can explain contextualization, multi-perspectival thinking, compassion. Now, there are a few traps and tricks that you need to be aware of. One is what we call flatland. So in integral theory, flatland is where you have a part or a system or a concept which reduces all other parts to that layer, to that level. So anyone that says that this one thing is correct is usually falling into some sort of flatland. Now, why isn't integral theory exempt from that? Or why is it exempt from that? Isn't integral theory just doing that itself? Well, no, because the difference is you need to be able to explain in rather than explain away. Now, an explanation of a branch of human knowledge can be, it can be condescending or it can be encouraging. And in a sense, that's how you can tell the difference. If someone's condescending, then they're, di- they're dismissing it. They're putting it away. They're giving it, they're, they're reducing it. They're sweeping it under the rug. If they're encouraging, then they're inclusive. Now, not all perspectives are like that. A lot of dogmatism and closed-mindedness exists in certain levels of development. And that's the difference between a open view or an open system of understanding, an open theory, and a closed theory. If you're explaining it in and you're encouraging it, you're saying, yes, it's right in a certain way, with a certain number of premises, in a certain context. Now, that doesn't mean that integral theory is all-inclusive of everything in the sense that it says yes to everything. It still has the ability to say, no, that's wrong, we don't want to do that. We can say that Nazis are bad. We can say that Nazis have a lower level of moral development than other cultural phenomenons. So it doesn't mean that there's no discrimin there's, there's no dif- there's still differentiation there's still differences but it's from a more nuanced point it's from a more complex point it's a higher point of view so the other big trap that Ken Wilber talks about is the pre-trans fallacy so this curious thing happens in development where and it ha- it comes up 
again and again in different lines of development, which is where you have your pre-conventional, which is your early stage of development, and then you have conventional, which is normal, basically what is generally accepted, and then you have post-conventional, which is more advanced and more rare. And what happens again and again is that post-conventional sometimes looks like pre-conventional. For example, you might have an advanced meditator or someone who's advanced in meditation who has these states of consciousness which are without words and they're against using words, they're against symbols. Now, if you look at a baby who is pre-cognitive, they don't have words. They don't have symbols. They don't have concepts. And so you can say that in some regard, the enlightened Zen master who has years of meditation practice under his belt has the same qualities as a, newly, a newborn baby because they don't, they don't think. They don't use their minds. They're very anti-mind. They're both anti-mind. And this is, this is quite common in a lot of sages and mystics and gurus from India and whatnot. They say they're anti-mind, they're against the mind. So that's pre-conventional looking the same as post-conventional. So to the person who's in the middle of the two, in other words, the person who is conventional, they look at these two parts of the spectrum and they lump them together. They reduce them together. And that's the pre-trans fallacy. And that actually creates a lot of resistance in them from wanting to move to the higher stages because they think it's regression. It's re it's, they mistake the, the resistance to the unfolding of higher stages with the regression to lower stages of development. So keep an eye out for that. That's the pre-trans fallacy. Of course, Wilbur explains it much more eloquently than me, and you should really read up what he has to say about it. So there's a great book called Integral Life Practice. And you might be thinking at this stage of the conversation, well, Andrew, this all sounds great. It's all very philosophical, and I can see that you've got incredibly complex psychological and religious maps, conceptually speaking, but how do I apply it? What do I do with it? What's the point of it? What is the practical application? And there is a book which translates this whole theory into a personal development life practice. So this is like a blueprint for what you do with integral theory. And it's multidimensional. It's all-encompassing. And there's a lot of flexible, there's a flexibility to it. So I'll go through some of them now. So basically, if you're doing integral life practice, your philosophical framework is integral theory. And then your modules are the behaviors that you do in order to develop yourself through the framework, through the theory. So here's a quick rundown of it. The modules are daily activities, and you've got two broad categories. You've got core, which you do every day, or I at least try to do every day. This, by the way, is my own, this is my own practice blueprint. This is what I do more or less every day. I'm not very good at these. I'm still very amateur at these, but I found huge results just from doing 
just from doing a, a short amount in a half-assed way is enough to make, and, you, and you, if you do it every day, it's enough to make you make huge gains because you're cross-training. You're, you're training all forms of intelligence. So it only takes as much as 20 to 30 minutes every day. So we've got core modules and additional modules. And these are sample practices. So you can choose from a list as to what suits your needs or what you're more inclined towards. So the four core modules is body, mind, spirit, and shadow. Under body, you've got the three kind of body workout, strength training, aerobics exercises, balanced diet and eating, yoga, martial arts, sports and dance. So you wouldn't do all of those. You'd choose one. You might do yoga and you might do aerobic exercises. Or you might do dance and martial arts. Or you might just do sports. And that's your body module. In the mind module, you've got reading and study, discussion and debate, writing and journaling, looking at your meaning making, your integral framework. So your mind is where your, your psychology comes in. Or you might do formal education, like pursuing a degree. In the spirit section, you've got meditation, prayer, integral inquiry, spiritual community, worship, songs and chants, and compassionate exchange. So those, if you do 20 minutes of meditating a day, you've got your spirit modules covered. And then the final core is shadow work. So shadow work is more about, we didn't even cover that in our psychological it's yet another dimension of integral theory, but basically you can do dream work, journaling, psychotherapy, family or couples therapy, transmuting emotions, art, music, and dance therapy. So that's your therapy side. That's your personal side. That's working on your personality, which is your type. And these all cross over in different parts of... They, they, they cover multiple parts of integral theory. So the additional is ethics, work, relationships, creativity, and soul. So under ethics, you've got philanthropy or volunteer work or social activism. Under work, you've got your professional development, your financial intelligence, time management, choosing the right career, that sort of thing. In relationships, you've got being vulnerable, integral parenting, intimacy workshops, sexual yoga, these sorts of things. In creativity, you've got creative writing, drama, creative community, cooking, interior, de interior design, music, those sorts of things. And then you've got soul, which might be nature communion. So you might need to get out and see some nature. You've got resonance with art, experiences with culture and literature, vision quests, and solitude. So you can see that if you're doing a core practice, you're doing body, mind, spirit, and shadow work, you might spend only 30 to 40 minutes a day doing that. You can do a little bit of that each day, and then you're doing additionals once or twice a week from a couple of those sections, and you've got a wider range of the spectrum covered because each of those modules covers a different part of 
your integral development, your integral transformation. And if you're consistent with it, what'll happen is you'll see, you'll feel your changes as you move through the waves of development. It's spiritual cross-training. It's a larger spectrum. It's a larger approach. We usually think that I'll just pick a couple of things to get good at and focus only on them. And in a sense, you still need to do that. You still need to have your core thing. But integral approach says, let's cover all of our bases and therefore improve all of our bases quicker. So for example, if you lift weights and you meditate, your meditation will be better. It will progress quicker than if you didn't lift weights. And vice versa, if you lift weights and you keep coming up against a glass ceiling, you should probably take up meditation because that will help with your weightlifting. That will help with the development of your body. They're, they're interconnected. And that is really what it's like to have an integral life practice, which is the practical application of integral theory. If you've listened this far, you're in too deep. I'm sorry to say, but there's no turning back now. You have to find out more about integral theory. And what an incredible, beautiful breakthrough it is. I've had so many revelations and I've felt such this incredible joy, this incredible feeling of beauty, this peace that comes with more understanding. If you put all the pieces together and you start being able to hold the different aspects of integral theory in your mind throughout the day, basically the theory becomes a part of your structure, then as you come into more information and more situations and you do more research, more, research, more learning, then you can see that it only gets stronger. It only becomes more dynamic and more dimensional, more expansive, more inclusive. And it's just incredible to come across the cutting edge. Who would have thought that the answers are actually out there? Come up with a better theory. Come up with something even more advanced. Come and tell me about it. Tell me what, as soon as there's a better answer to these questions, I'm going to be there. I really want to learn about the fundamentals of life. This is what I've seen. This is what I've found. I don't think there's anything else. I don't think there's any better way of explaining it. Come and tell me about it if there is. I'd love to hear from you. I'm all for the best possible. I mean, who isn't? Who doesn't want the best explanation? Who doesn't want the simplest explanation? Who, who, wants to be, who doesn't want to be rid of their structures, their rigid, their rigid ways of thinking, their stuck ways of thinking, their backwards ideas? hitting their head against the, the wall. Some of these thinkers, these people that understand integral theory properly, they can run rings around public intellectuals. They can completely just, just explain simply and clearly what's going on in a concise way, in an easy-to-understand way. When you know the terminology and you can get your head around the words, take, for example, there's this guy called... Jeff Salzman, and he does a podcast or a video sort of thing talking about integral theory. I don't know how many episodes he's got, but one of his episodes is about Jordan Peterson. And he can just 
simply and easily explain what it's like to understand Jordan Peterson's ideas and his philosophies through the integral framework. And it just makes things so much easier. And in a sense, it cuts out so much mess. It cuts out so much. You, when you come across certain things, you can much more easily categorize them. And it doesn't mean you explain them away. It doesn't mean you forget about them. But in a sense, a certain amount of things become irrelevant when you understand integral theory. Because you get deeper. You get more heart out of what you want to learn. And it becomes a filter which is highly refined. Integral theory is refined. It's the edge. It's the cream of the crop. It's the best wine. It's the aged wine. So once you get in deep enough, there's no turning back. There is a lot of pain that goes with growth. There's no doubt about that. Pain does come with transformation. But the flowering, the beauty, the coming through to the other side is so worth it. It's just incredible. And some of the common thoughts that I've had or one of the thoughts that I've repeatedly had is what would have happened? What would I have done if I hadn't have found this? I could have easily not found, I could have easily skimmed this over. What else am I missing in life? What else do I not have that is so useful, that is so practical and that can explain so much so easily? What would I have done? I probably would have found it eventually. Something would have happened because I was already on this conveyor belt of learning, of trying to find things. I don't know what people have to do to get on that conveyor belt. I guess you just have to be really into learning or something or you have to really want to know about life. Something like that. I don't know. But I'm very grateful to have had this world open up to me. It's incredible to think what might have been if I hadn't have gone down this path, if I hadn't have been open-minded, if I hadn't have been thirsty for learning and truth and knowledge, I probably would just be bouncing around like everyone else. And I don't want that to sound like I'm being condescending because another great thing that integral theory does is it recognizes people's differences. You don't have to change where you are. You don't have to deny who you are and what you are. You are just at one place within the integral framework. You don't need to be beaten over the head and told to progress and transform and improve yourself. You really need to be encouraged in what you're already doing. If you follow what you're doing more passionately, you will eventually rise to integral theory, integral levels. You'll stumble upon integral theory out of a need for the transformation, out of a need for the progress. It's just that often we don't make enough progress within the small channels that we've got. We live in very small worlds. That's why learning about integral theory is an opening up. It's a broadening of your perspective and it's a whole new world. The, the world looks different depending on where you are. Do you realize the significance of that? There are a, it is a different world, not in terms of spiritual and material. Literally, 
It's a different world. Everything behaves differently. Everything looks differently. Once you go integral, you don't look back. And I'm just so grateful to have stumbled upon this. Now, there is another question I'd like to ask, which is, do you have to read Ken Wilber books to be integral? Is, is Ken Wilber the only integral person? And the answer is no. Integral theory is more, it's more broad than just one philosopher's ideas. Now, Ken Wilber is the most comprehensive and eloquent writer and the most recent writer on integral theory. But there have been other people, very few though, there have been other people who have discovered the integral realms. So people like Jane Gibson, and there's a few other psychologists that I've forgotten the names of now, but they basically were getting close to or had just broken through the integral realms. Some people were very highly developed in terms of their subjective points of view. And some people are, so that would be the sages like Jesus, the Buddha, Lao Tzu, all those sorts of people. They're very big on their states of consciousness development. But that's often married with a poor psychology. And that's the, that's the weakness of religion, which is that it doesn't have a very strong explanation. The other side of it is the psychological side. So people can have very good explanations of the psychology of humans. That's basically the West. So this is East and West, the classic paradox, the classic duality. But people who have a strong psychology usually don't develop their states of consciousness. They don't develop their spirituality, their subjective experience. So it's even rarer that the two come together. But now we, we know this. Now it's clear as day what needs to happen. And a buffoon like me who reads psychology books in his spare time can get, their, can, can get his head around it quick enough to see that the whole point of life, the entire direction of life, needs to go in a positive direction. Do you realize that transformation is fundamental to the quality of your life? Don't you want more juice out of life? How many times do I have to say this? Are you sick of hearing me say this yet? Transformative practice for the purposes of getting more juice out of life is your highest value. It's your prime directive. What more could you possibly want? What if you're wasting your life? Do you never think that? Do you, do, do you really honestly, like, if you honestly think, no, actually, this isn't for me. I've got it sweet. I've got it made. Then you're never again allowed to even wonder if you're wasting your time with everything that you do, anything that you do throughout your day, you must Embrace it as the best possible thing that is for you. Now, that is one way of progressing through transformation. That's the path of devotion. Or one way of putting it would be the path of devotion. Integral theory is really the path of knowledge. So the cat is out of the bag. There's no turning back. and There's no way you can get off the hook. In the years to come more people will learn about 
integral theory and spiral dynamics and states of consciousness and all these other things like the perennial philosophy and we'll learn to navigate our differences better we'll have more technological advance and i'm very optimistic i think that the world's problems are so complex that they're going to they're going to need a complex answer to them they're going to need a holistic view of the world a coherency between the different perspectives and attitudes of the world of human knowledge so integral theory provides that and more and more people are coming online ken wilber is not some fringe off in the distance philosopher he's a he's a central like whole institutions have been founded on this theory and there are thousands and thousands of people that are coming into this awareness of integral consciousness of integral psychology and if you've listened this far you're now being born into this so welcome to the club i can't tell you how beautiful it is to welcome someone and how much joy there is going to be how much understanding there is going to be oh there's just there's so much goodness and kindness and love it's really it's really beautiful it's quite emotional actually and it's also intellectual it's 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 everything that's what's so beautiful about integral theory is it's everything everything at once your next move is to buy a Ken Wilber book, read it, probably get confused, even more confused than I've confused you. My brain is pretty fried from talking about it. <laughs> I'm only an amateur at and I'm sure there I'm sure there are lots of mistakes in you can't go off just what I've said here because I'm sure there are lots of mistakes and misinterpretations and mispronunciations, misspellings, these sorts of things. But more, more or less, this is just the gist of it. This is the general vibe of integral theory. If you read a Ken Wilber book, that will be much more concise, much more eloquent in how it, how it portrays these ideas. And there are also speakers. What I'll do is I'll link below to Jeff Salzman and some of his talks on integral theory. And there are other people as well. There are lots of people that talk about this, like Leo Gura from actualize.org is another self-help guru who is well familiar with integral theory and he uses it as a framework for all his teachings on personal development and spirituality and and there's a whole bunch of people that that fall into the integral category it's up to you to do your research follow your nose you've got a carrot in front of you now there's enough here there's enough leads that you have no excuse not to know what is next. No one's going to hold your hand. No one's going to do it for you. If you want to know, you have to find out for yourself. If you want to discover this beautiful world, it's up to you. No one can force you to make your way through. One of the fundamental aspects of transformation and human development is that you only develop to the average of your society. You only develop to a certain point, depending on your culture and your upbringing and your life conditions. If you can become aware of your situation to such a degree that you take on 
the responsibility of your transformation yourself, and you take the responsibility yourself, you can develop beyond the average, beyond the center of gravity of your society, of your place in time, in culture and history. But it's entirely up to you. It's entirely up to your own efforts and your own learning. And it does take time. It does take effort. It's a bumpy road. It's not a straight arrow. There's a lot of dead ends. There's a lot of back and forths. But at least now you have a bit of a foundation and a bit of a framework to work with. So I could go on all day about how much I've learned about integral theory. And really the whole reason I started this podcast was to present to you integral theory. All those psychological episodes that I did earlier offer a sort of foundation. And if you've listened to those, then you're probably able to get your head around at least some of this. But really, integral theory is the thing that I'm pointing you towards. You don't need to listen to me anymore once you've heard this. So thanks very much for tuning in. It's been an absolute joy to talk about integral theory. Welcome to the club. We're so pleased that you made it. It's wonderful that you've come home at last, where you belong. And there's nothing but beautiful flowerings to come. Hope you enjoy the rest of your day. And that's all I have to say for now.